God is a communicator through word, creation, and spirit. Through the intimacy of relationship, that's where the communication comes. Welcome to Reformed Podmatics, a weekly podcast hosted by Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. In each episode, we strive to apply Reformed theology to life and ministry in the 21st century. Thanks for joining us for this week's conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Zach. And I'm Pastor Mark. And today we're joined by a special guest and new friend, Pete Vanderbeek. For those of you who are regular listeners of Reformed Podmatics, you may or may not be familiar with Pete's work. Uh, I came into uh, contact with Pete's work through his YouTube channel, uh, which Pete, I believe, is just called Pete Vanderbeek, right? Or is there, is it Pastor Pete Vanderbeek? Pastor, Pastor Vanderbeek? Pete Vanderbeek, yeah. Okay, yeah. So if anybody wants to go and find uh, Pete's channel, we can put it in the show notes below. Uh, but Pete has been doing a series of vlogs um, in reference to Synod uh, starting, I think, this past summer. Um, and so I've been uh, following along uh, over the course of the past couple of months listening to Pete. Um, as many of you who are listeners of Reformed Pragmatics are probably just like me, uh, curious about what's going on in the life of the CRC, and we're paying attention very much to uh, what was going on after Synod or during Synod. Uh, I found Pete's videos uh, in the midst of all of that and have been interested in hearing his take. Pete's take, as you'll hear, um, is going to be uh, different than maybe what our own take is, and that's all part of the fun. That's why we wanted to have Pete on and to be a guest on our show uh, to do this sort of perspectives series. And so, uh, Pete, it should be it would be good for us to start with you just telling us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your ministry and where you are in the context that you serve the Lord in. Yeah, you're in danger because I'm a storyteller. Um, <laughs> so for, first, I think I want to share with you that uh, the last well, I, 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 um, since you started this series, I listened to a couple of those podcasts, but the last one I had listened to before that was when you, it must've been shortly after this synod where you had a conversation about having exit interviews with ministers who wanted to leave that were, that had a corrective element to them <laughs> or a call to repentance. And so I thought, okay, I'm done with that one. And, uh, but then when you reached out to me, I thought, okay, because I do very much believe we need to be having conversation across some of the, the differences. So how else are you going to do that? You know? Um, right. Yeah. So that's what, that's, that's why I said yes. To try yeah, well, we very that. much appreciate you coming on. Okay. We're breaking down the silos. That's what we're trying to do a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <too>. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, or even identifying the silos. Cause, yeah. cause my experience is that speaking from one silo to another, standing on top of it, is not effective. Mm -hmm. But I can, if if someone could get through to me and point out the silo that I'm standing in or on and help me from a distance, if I'm willing, begin to dismantle it, now we're making progress. So I'm the oldest of eventually six children of William and Gertie Vanderbeek. Dad was one of the pastors who uh, came from Holland in the early 50s 
answering the call of desperation from the Canadian CRCs. They advertised in the Netherlands for pastors who could speak both Dutch and English. Um, because all these churches were being formed by the immigrant move. And uh, I think before the 50s, we had only um, we had only maybe three congregations in all of Canada. I've served one of them, and it was very interesting because they tell stories of when the immigrants came, they had just started switching to English. Like when the when the World War II immigrants came, they had they had started doing their services in English, their catechism in English, this, uh, and all these immigrants forced them to move back. And so there's a lovely story in um, in one of the history books of the Canadian CRC that uh, uh, that talks about Timon Hoffman wrote it. Um, and about this one guy who was so convinced about the English that he insisted that like when his children were baptized, they be baptized in English. And when Lord's Supper happened, he would be served Lord's Supper in English in the basement. Like the, these all happened in the basement. Um, anyway, he was one of the characters from that time. Sorry. See, I went on a side trail already. So <laughs> that's all right. Um, my dad answered the call for ministers to come as a single as a single man um i'm not sure exactly where he all studied i think he was at uh he was at westminster one of the westminsters for a while and possibly at kelvin as as well um and uh mom immigrated as part of her large family of origin and immigrated to the province i live in now to alberta and so it's very interesting to hear some of their stories of the immigration um and uh, that the stories of many others, when many of them, when I still visit some of them, or when many of them uh, were around, or a lot of them were around, one of my one of my standard questions always was, why did you and your family move to Canada? And so I have a whole uh, database of uh, of answers to that. So I'm the father of five young adults, and some of them are parents themselves, and so and I, so I also have seven grandchildren. And they're the finest young adults you can find anywhere. Um, not so much the grandchildren. I'm thinking the grandchildren will never hear this. So, <laughs> <laughs> No, they're great grandchildren. But I, I'm just kind of allergic to uh, becoming the kind of grandpa that flashes the pictures every chance they get, you know. So I'm, I'm trying <laughs> to counter that a little bit. Um, I'm married to Amy, who has a family medical practice here in Edmonton. And that's a whole story in itself, how interesting that is. We are dog people. Um, as opposed to cat people, probably. As opposed to cat people, although she's had a cat before, but I'm not a cat person. I have a whole a bunch person. of these kinds of distinctives. Yep. I think I even played with it in one of my one of my videos, right, where I started out with, there are three kinds of people in this world, those that understand math and those that don't. <laughs> right? So um, another one that I ask people is when you give or receive directions, of course, that with these phones, it's not, it's not a valid question anymore. It's dated. But um, <laughs> when you give or receive directions, what do you want? Do you want street names and exact distances and times? Or do you want landmarks? So in that, ca in that category, I'm a landmarks guy. Mm -hmm. Right? So... Uh, give me street names and exact times and distances and I'm lost within two feet. So 
Um, if you measure a, a time frame of one year or more, I have lived in 23 different homes in my lifetime, largely because my dad was a pastor. And he was a pastor in a time when three and a half years was it. Or the way I measure it, three times through the catechism <laughs> at night. And if you weren't creative, you had to move on, right? So, uh, which which also has shaped my generation's oh, about the catechism. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who now works at the seminary who came out of a different denomination. And at seminary, when us CRC guys were assigned to write a, a catechism sermon, mm. we were all that. So he asked me later, well, you know, well, what's that all about? And I said, well, here. So I gave him a hymnal and I said, the catechism is that thing in the back there. He came to school the next day up to a group of us Canadian raised CRC guys. He was Canadian as well. And so, and he goes, wow, you guys have this all worked out. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, and that I felt a shift in my own perspective at that point because now someone else is admiring the catechism. So, hmm. yeah, um, and wouldn't you say that uh, it's it's beyond a boredom for many in your generation? There's a real antipathy in, in, in a lot of ways towards the catechism. I, the first funeral that I ever, or one of the first funerals I ever did, uh, children, adult children who are, are your age, Pete, uh, came in, were planning the funeral. One of them says, under absolutely no circumstances will we quote the Heidelberg Catechism during this service. And I'm like, whoa, yeah, I, I grew up in this church plant where we learned it and I did, we didn't have all that cultural stuff attached to it. And I just liked it. And then I went to seminary, I learned it a little bit more. They had a whole different experience of the catechism used as kind of a cudgel to, to tell those youth you know, where they had to be on Wednesday night. And, you know, it, it was a weird experience of what the yeah, catechism was, was for a lot of CRC torture. people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Often and the so minister that, that had a very all. thick accent, you know, and and was uh, on a scholastic lecture mode with it, not interactive at all. Um, the one time I had a chance to teach the catechism for question and answer. And by the way, a lot of that generation do find very deep and true comfort, and some of mine as well, in question and answer one. Um, mm -hmm. So this this must have had more story to it. But there you go. Yeah, There's yeah. a cultural difference that you ran into, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I took I took these guys. I happened to have nine kids in the class, seven of whom were cousins to each other, you know. And um, <laughs> so uh, they came into the room and started taking their coats off. I said, keep your coats on. This was before you had to ask permission to take them anywhere. Um, and <laughs> I said, everybody into the van. Because a favorite older, a 55-year-old gentleman of theirs had died in the congregation a few weeks before. And I checked with the widow and made, this was okay. So I took them to the graveyard, right, at dusk. And and I had I said, everybody get out of the van, pick a grave, pick gravestone to sit on. Hmm. And I said, uh, and I let, I, they got, they were getting uncomfortable. And it was perfect because there was some mist you know, it was getting dark and it was getting misty. <laughs> and uh, and so they started saying, you know, Pastor Pete, you're, you're freaking me out. And I said, that's part of the point. And so I said, by now, uh, your your butts are getting really uncomfortable. Um, they're sitting on a gravestone, right? When we're gathered around the grave of this fellow that had died. And you're getting really uncomfortable. And the thing I'm supposed to teach you about is about comfort. 
And you're uncomfortable partly because you're in a place of death. And you don't believe for, for a moment that you'll ever be here, not for a hundred years, right? So I, I did a little talk like that. <laughs> okay, everybody back in the, in the van, right? So I, I would have loved to have gotten a grant to develop that kind of, but you see how that's a reaction to what I grew up with, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a, an interactive, think it through, experience it focus. So mm -hmm. um, where was I? <laughs> Dog people? Um, 23 <laughs> homes. Yeah. Um, if you take it down to six months, I've, I've lived in about 26, somewhere between 26 and 32 homes, which has shaped me. It has, uh, it's one of the things that contributed to my abilities as an STM. So as a, as a kid moving to a new town, first of all, you, you learn to understand pretty quickly as the oldest son of the minister, that there's an expectation by the congregation of how you're going to behave. And unfortunately, your parents have to kind of support that. So, so um, you know, white white shirt, dress pants, and the clip-on tie, which I hated. <laughs> and so, but you have to wear that because otherwise, Dad gets phone calls on Monday, right? So, um, those that's one thing you learn. But you also need to learn at the school where you're going to fit on the pecking order, and who is the low guy on the pecking order that's going to want to fight you after school to see if he can gain a position above you and leave you on the bottom right so um now i had a lot of those experiences i didn't know what was going on but later on as i reflect i start to see what i was experiencing so you learn really quickly to learn the lay of the social land um and that's now a skill that i can use coming into a congregation as a specialized transitional minister in terms of uh, likening your series that you, that I'm now part of, of conversations to an extended family gathering, I would be the uncle from a semi-foreign land whose <laughs> ideas and experiences are interesting because they're outside of the usual. Okay. When this uncle speaks, those from the gathering who have never wandered far get defensive and dismissive that's my experience so and uh even in terms of some of the reaction private and public to my videos right it's interesting to notice who starts going on on the attack um and who gets defensive and what is that all about my favorite comment so far has been by a, an 80 something he's told me he was 80 something years old he didn't agree with me um, but he was glad I was doing it and that I should get false teeth. So <laughs> that's the risk of video, right? So, yeah. so it was it was a it was a delightful comment. So I'm not uh, like it was just interesting, right? Reminded me actually of my grandmother, my maternal gr grandmother, who um, like my mom's side of the family was from the blunt speaking area of the Netherlands. Mm. <laughs> So you'd walk in, you hadn't been, seen her for three years. First comment, you need a haircut, right? Yeah. That sort of thing. So, um, so I'm I'm that person in this family constellation, and uh, and part of it. So, and my middle name, people that have uh, people have tried to give me an extra middle name. I already have one, but and this is church people and. A lady I came to know through my Jordan Peterson meetup group that I used to have 
who teaches all the, the racism stuff at a, at a at a at a college nearby or now a university, not a Christian one. And she said, I want to give you a middle name and it's provocateur. <laughs> so I've learned that's part of my character. And I used to try and suppress it. Uh, feel I had to. And oh, I would say only in the last 10 years or so am I starting to go in it with a pattern of, you know what, it's who God made me to be. I question things. And, and, uh, and so that's, I'm going to, I'm going to not hide that, so to speak. The most significant me memory I have of a connection, anything close to a connection with my father, who has, uh, who was a pastor in the CRC, was when at my ordination service which was delayed a year another story he described me as testing and tested mm -hmm. and the longer i have time from that i realize that he did see me mm -hmm. right i'm always testing always pushing the boundaries and what that creates is a lot of being tested as well uh, for the sake of this conversation and the provocateur middle name, I'll put some deliberately stark and bold labels on myself. I am a revisionist. And I do that deliberately, right? Because I think that that was the first offense I ran into when I tried to read the Human Sexuality Report. Hmm. I just posted a video yesterday of Kenneth Bailey and he talks in this video that I that I refer to about, and I put the clip in on purpose, yes, just to get people thinking, um, that we need some cultural revisionist thinking in order to understand the parable, Western cultural revisionist thinking. So Kenneth Bailey is a revisionist too. I'm, I'm of a transformational branch of the Christian Reformed Church. So that's a, a version of Kuyperianism where... We believe God is, uh, we believe that we were to live out the, the laws of nature that God had put in place, natural law, which many other laws support, but that, you know, like, so we are not called to defy the law of gravity, and <laughs> you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, and we were to live exemplary lives that would attract the non-Israelites to Israel. Um, early, in my early years, evangelism was not a thing, right? We've, we actually more subscribe to the theology of, hey, conversion is up to God. We just got to live well, and the rest will, will follow. Mm -hmm. Some of my generation started asking questions when the rest never followed. So um, I'm a, a key part of my identity is that I'm a second-generation immigrant from parents who came out of post-World War II Europe. And I have Huguenot DNA. A cousin did some research, and both sides of the family were Huguenots, which, <laughs> which actually makes me more comfortable with who I am. So, And then I go into transitional ministry. I'll say a few things. Um, but I'm yeah. called, absolutely, um, called and equipped to be a specialized transitional minister. And it's a delight to find myself in that. I am putting contract possibilities at risk with my videos and so in a couple times in the videos i mentioned i don't make those as an stm i make them as me right because as an stm i come in neutral and 
and just see what what I see. Um, and uh, and I can I can offend as an STM. I'm an equal opportunity offender too. So I can I can ask hard questions of the progressives that they don't like as well. So it's my job. We are invited into churches, in case you don't know what they are, that recognize the need to do some work before they move to a new pastorate. Occasionally, we are injected into a church by classes after a contentious Article 17, as we call it. And I love the work. And a big part of my testimony is that without some of the serious hardships that I have gone through and that God has brought me through, I would be less equipped to do the role well. It's almost a qualifier, in fact. Um, and uh, yeah, sorry, held myself back from a rabbit trail. <laughs> so even though I really don't want any new hardships, even, every time I say that, I'm saying, Lord, please, no more. Um, without a flicker of a doubt, I can say that God has used them to shape me for the better. And that's a biblical teaching we have lost, that suffering can shapes you for the better. And sometimes, God, oftentimes, God is in it. But we're a culture, both on both sides of the 49th, that is suffering avoiders. Right? So um, my two favorite biblical models for transitional ministry are Moses, who led Israel on a transition journey, right? From not God's people to God's people. Uh, then I will be your God and you will be my people is God's repeated refrain in that. This is what he's working towards. And Moses is the leader through it. And maybe even more favorite is the prophet Nathan for David, who comes to him with a story that's a mirror of what he has done. Right. And then, and then David's emotional reaction to the story that Nathan tells reveals the struggle in his heart. And fortunately, David saw his own image in the mirror of the story. So and as an STM, I approach it a lot like that. I'll try and tell parallel stories or I'll say, hey, I'm seeing this, you know. Um, what What is that? I see that nobody talks to the janitor after church. Is there a specific reason for that? Has he asked for that? You know, st just stuff like that. that. That's really helpful to hear uh, your perspective, like, which I guess, you know, it's obviously your story, but it's shared by uh, of your generation, especially in how they've experienced immigration and the Canadian CRC and so forth. And so one thing that I, I, I maybe I've observed generally and, and I hear coming through your story too is the intense uh, reliance on relationship in uh, particularly those immigrant communities and how at the very same time, uh, doctrine was sort of used to um, uh, to control, probably a lot, of, especially in Sabbatarianism um, yes. contexts. Um, and so what was life-giving was often the relationships and what was soul-crushing was often how doctrine was presented to people. And so um, just thinking about the contrast uh, between that and, and more of the Christian Reformed Church in which I was raised, where it was very it was emphasized relationships, but doctrine was was pretty light. I grew up in sort of a seeker church, community church, CRC. And so growing up, really, I had a hunger for doctrine. And and I think you see that among many in, in my generation. And, you know, Zach's a little bit younger than me of just like, wow, doctrine's amazing. It's exciting. Let's figure right. out what we believe. Let's read Bob Inc. Let's, let's uh, 
let's get into um, what the catechism says. And people get excited about things like the HSR because it kind of scratches that itch a little bit. And, and we may struggle to see the relational impact um, of that, whereas that's that relational, this comes through in a lot of synod comments. It's like, yes. this is gonna this is gonna make my relationships really complicated. And so there's a whole other group of the CRC saying, yeah, but it's the doctrine that we've got to just look at and, and, and just yeah. hold on to. And so could you maybe uh, take that comment yeah, so and that, run with it? I'm curious. That's basically the first video that I did. I mean, I was sitting here, I think Paul Vanderclay had done one and and it sparked this for me. And I thought, like, where do I put this? So I made a video. And uh, and that's that the, what I saw on the floor of Synod and what it's basically what you just expressed as well is that because um, because the ones that were standing up, like, uh, um, yeah, I'll stay away from names, but the ones that were standing up saying relational, asking relational questions tended to be Canadian, right? So, so our parents were not good at being relational and or emotional. And the church mm -hmm. held, held a lot of sway over the immigrants because they wanted the community connection of people who spoke Dutch, right? So the church had some power in the early years to exclude you from communion if you were saw, seen buying, well, none of them would ever wear buy diapers because they all used, washed them. Um, but if you were seen in a store on a Sunday, you know, that sort of thing. But that faded quickly. And so I'll, I'll speak of it as my personal experience, but I never understood till I was in my 30s that this was all about a relationship restored with God through Jesus. Hmm. And I have some anger about that still. It's like, why did nobody tell me that? Right? So the pietistic side of the, our Kuyperianism made it about Sabbatarianism and the and uh, putting on the behaviors that made you look acceptable. But, yeah, my, my wife's experience at a camp, you know, she was in eighth grade, and they sort of did like pray raise your hand, come to the, she's like, I don't think I should think that way. Right. You know, it's sort of how she was raised in her Christian reformed church. And it was like, no, it's just praying to Jesus. And, you know, and she was raised in a good home, a healthy home. And, sure. and they, they talked about those things, but that, that confirms your story. And again, she's Canadian for those yeah. listeners. And, who don't and know when I, know. when I say that, like a, a, a relationship restored with God through Jesus, like I am not talking about an altar call, like they do at camp mm. or, mm. or, um, or making that momentary commitment. This just for me developed over time. And then I had a couple of experiences of, I'm going to call it intimacy with God that mm -hmm. like, and so um, sometimes in some of my sermons, I'll actually say that like, um, well, yeah. Oh, um, well, you know, is that like this stuff in acts, like it can happen today, versions of it. They're rarely as dramatic or as obvious as what we what we think the Pentecostals make of them, but um, you can have experiences where you dedicate your day to God, where God will put something in your in 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 front of you that you have an opportunity to. It's a, it's a story I'm thinking of, but I can't I won't tell the whole story, and uh, where you have an opportunity to give a testimony of what you believe, what you actually believe, and. Um, you need to be alert to it. And somebody needs to teach you to be alert to it. Now, my theology also includes that if that comes and passes and you miss it, you're not going to hell because of it. You've just missed a great opportunity. So let's teach people to look for these opportunities. 
So, um, so there's this, so there's this contingent now within the denomination. Well, no, that's that's we can get to that another time. But, um, but this difference is what I saw on the floor of synod, where there's a whole culture, and they tend to be mainly Canadians, not exclusively, but that uh, that have learned, hey, this is about. Um, our relationship with God restored through Jesus Christ, and then how we relate to others coming out of that, out of that awareness. And um, that, that shapes our whole theology. I am working on writing that out. I call it practical relational theology, right? Mm -hmm. And many of us then have that, uh, and some don't maybe even recognize they have it, this adversity to how we were introduced to the great teachings of the church, right? I told you about my buddy who, who found the catechism amazing, right? Mm -hmm. And and uh, I recently had an experience here with a, a pastor, well, it's probably seven years ago now, who came to serve this, a CRC church that because of the church order, he had been in an independent church plant, and he said every issue that came up, we had to figure out how to deal with it. And here you have this booklet, right? So again, that's an opportunity for me to look at the silo that I've built around myself and go, oh, okay, maybe this brick is a bit dangerous. I need to take this out. So what? We're, but what we're dealing with then is people who sound like, so it's not a specific generation, but it is interesting to me that it tends to be largely people who have come into the CRC more recently that's not a knock, Zach, um, right? <laughs> so, but, and like, here's a common thread to, to the stories. And if you know Peter Rockhold, it's part of his story as well. Mm -hmm. um, he's up, up in this area. And, but he was, this is just a, a theme in their stories. They're study, they feel a call. They go to a seminary. It's, it's not necessarily reformed. They're in the library. They're going home. They trip over a book that's that's holding the door open. And they go, wow, this big book, you know. What, why is a book holding a door open? Well, that's because the janitor is Christian Reformed and doesn't <laughs> like Burkhoff, right? So, so, and they pick it up, and it's Burkhoff's theology books, systematic theology or whatever. And they start reading ver various versions of that, and they fall in love with that. And then they see that this comes out of the Christian Reformed Church, so they they work on making the switch. And mm -hmm. they come into it and they find out it's not what Burkhoff mm -hmm. was writing about 150 years ago anymore. And so they want to recover that. They, they tend to be the ones that love the doctrinal part of what it means to historically be Reformed. And and not the, the relational piece that we've learned since, right? And so that's that's also a dynamic that's in there. And it is, <laughs> I, I admit publicly that that's why I get upset with them as well, because in them, I'm dealing with some of my father's generation. I'm dealing with some of my dad's stuff, right? <laughs> and And yet... Look, because I can't tell if the if the if the wrath is righteous or not. <laughs> I depend yeah. on good friends to tell me whether I'm being close to righteous or whether I'm being a jerk, um, right? And that's why the moment at synod when 
uh, Steve said, don't be jerks about it was actually one of the more pivotal moments um, in yeah. terms of symbolically significant. Yeah, I think it was a significant moment. There, there were several significant moments for sure yeah. in this synod. Um, and what you've just said is very much my own story. If you've listened to my podcast or anyone else has listened to it, uh, people will see my story and I'm very much one of those newcomers who loves the teaching of the Reformed Church because I didn't have it. I came from a sort of mixed background um, coming into the Reformed world. In my hometown of Kingsburg, California, there is not a single Reformed or Calvinistic church, and there's lots of churches, but there was none of those. Um, and so upon finding it in my college years, upon finding the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement, um, I discovered a breath of fresh air that actually Christianity had a intellectual backbone. Um, and I get that there's a whole host of stories like yours for people in this denomination who um, are, in some ways, they, they've moved beyond the Burkhoff. They've moved even beyond Kuiper in some ways. And I, I get the emotional background behind that. But my question then for you, Pete, and this I think is one of the central questions, um, it's unfortunate we don't have a whole lot of time uh, to get to it, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what it means to be reformed. Uh, there could be simply a theological definition. I suspect it's more than that. Um, it's not less than that, but it is definitely more. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what does it mean to be reformed? Is it a matter of sort of growing up in the reformed church? And so you're by, you're by nature reformed? Is it doctrinal or both? And maybe something else. I'm curious. Yeah, I wrote it down because, because otherwise, you know, so, um, and, and again, you can only hit on so many things, but, and I've touched on some aspects already. So I think I could be reformed in any denomination for one thing. So it's not denomination specific. Re reformed is a worldview. Um, of course, if the worldview of the denomination fits my understanding of reform, then it's pretty easy to be within it. And that is part of what has changed. That is part of the shock of the of the last two synods. And I'm really, really sad and disappointed even that more progressives aren't trying to articulate. They're just, you know, is the shock going to last five years? <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and then they're going to find themselves sitting on the front stoop. So reform to me means God is sovereign. I've had many of my stories involve situations where the only words I can think of are like, well, that's works righteousness. I, I bought a car from a from an Egyptian guy who admitted that Islam wasn't working for him. He didn't know I was a pastor, right? And so I asked him some questions about it. And then the only thing I could think to say to him was, well, obviously your religion is one of works righteousness. And I thought, like, how do you, where do you start? So God is sovereign. God, God is ultimately in charge is what that means to me. Um, not me as a, not of me as a chess piece on a, on a, on a, on a board, not that kind of in charge. God is creator. God is how we won't another podcast. So <laughs> he's a communicator. God is a communicator through word creation and spirit through the intimacy of relationship. That's where the communication comes. You can have some great worship services, but if there's no intimacy in the worship service, 
the word is is falling on 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 ineffective. I'm still departing from my notes. I'll, I'll focus on my notes. Reformed <laughs> means we are here to take care of the creation as God's agents. That was very strong in my upbringing. Um, uh, you know, everyone would drive to church in their V8s to hear that, but and nod. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> um, Reformed recognizes that we, by nature or flesh, as Paul calls it, want to displace God in our own lives like Adam and Eve, and like the insolent son in the prodigal parable. Displace God from, go away, God, I can do it better myself. That's what they're saying. That's total depravity, just to translate into doctrinal language. Language, Reformed says we cannot fix the broken relationship with God ourselves. No matter how hard we work at chastity, that's not in my notes, I just felt the urge to say that <laughs> we can't fix it ourselves by the being the most chaste people we can be only the grace of god can make the repair and jesus suffering death and being resurrected accomplished that possible repair and our job is to communicate that to the people we encounter the relationship can be repaired did you know right um, reformed means that we are called to live in a way that is a leaven to our culture. That's the transformationalist piece. And are to shape our practices as the church to be accessible. That's the word vernacular, which is a teaching of Kelvin, accessible to the culture around us. That was a big deal for Kelvin, if I remember right. So in terms of what you're hopeful in for the future of the CRC, Pete. I'm curious, like if if you like, we asked this to some other people. Uh, if you had your way, uh, right? What would the CRC look like in five or ten years? Yeah, and I haven't given a whole. I'm going to do off the cuff on that because I haven't given that a whole lot of thought. Um, but one of the things, see that the the propositional statement minded people the doctrinal people and you know that sort of rationalistic mindset jamie smith calls it brains on a stick right so um the procedures existing for synod favor them at least the, on the floor of synod right where it's all about um supposedly rationally presenting the case and then having a vote um after after a prayer and um, I'm part of a culture. So I've taken courses in circle conversations, for instance. Um, like the, the Aboriginals, when the community had to make an important decision, <clears throat> they would sit in a circle and talk until they had consensus. And I, I've tried to adjust council meetings back when I was a called pastor to that kind of a, a format, right? Because, for instance, as soon as you have a motion in front of you, you're oppositional. You're either for it or against it. Um, so, so what I think happens at Synod, I've never been, by the way, um, and really don't have a whole lot of interest either. It's um, <laughs> So uh, is that in the committees, the relational piece happens. And then when it comes to the floor, 
this rapid fire uh, other thing happens that confuses the relational people, us relational people. So um, at an event actually two nights ago here where our delegates reported on their experience of Synod, it's actually online. I can send you guys the link after. Um, there I asked whether a longer Synod would, going back to a longer Synod would help. <clears throat> Problem with that is that only ministers can make it. And so that's, I'm not in favor of that. But yeah. there, I would say in the future, there needs to be, if we're going to continue together, there needs to be, first thing has to be a complete backing off. Of, I'm sorry, I'm getting passionate. Uh, and a creating of a safe space to work this through. But as I just saw, one of the one of our classes already within their own classes has said, if you have any concerns about the decisions in the last two years, you have six months to to smarten up or leave, right? Like that, what that I think that's part of why the progressives aren't speaking out, because a culture of fear has been created. So that needs to be uh, that needs to be given space to work itself out. Um, that would be the, that push, would be the first thing. Can I push back on that a little bit? Um, Absolutely. Um, so, you know, that was sort of mentioned in terms of Neelan um, and how we handle the Neelan church situation where, whoa, whoa, we're just deciding this right now. And this is going to be a big surprise to them what we've decided here. And so they need lots of time to kind of work things out down the road. And um, this will blindside them was almost what one of the things and that's a little bit of what I, I I hear, I guess, in your comment. But I mean, can't we be honest that people have known where they stand on this for 5, 10, 20 years? And so um, it it's not as though this was just decided two years ago in our denomination. And oh, well, all of a sudden, it's a big surprise that the CRC believes that homosexual activity is a sin. And that's sort of how it's being painted a little bit, I think, by those in the progressive wing, like, where did this come from? Well, yeah, so, it's been, so it's I, been like, what we believe for a long time. Yeah. So I, I refer to myself as a progressive, but I'm not an affirmer, right? At right. this point. Um, if I was a pastor of a church and a same-sex couple wanted to be married, I would have to work that out in that time, right? But I'm a relationalist, I'm a transformationalist, and I and so um okay, I need to say a few other things. So there's very little. On the conservative end of the scale, there's very little pastoral sympathy shown for the struggle that, my, in my understanding, I, I don't have direct connections, but uh, in 22, uh, quite a bit was said about their process, right? For the struggle of a, of a church who found themselves with a, a person of good standing, who had been a deacon before, who lived a good life on all other categories, being nominated again, like the struggle, the pastoral struggle they went through, there's there when when some of the conservatives speak, they don't show respect for them having struggled that through, and they depict the story as an act of defiance. Uh-uh. I don't, I mean, there may have been some of that in there because Grand Rapids East is suspect anyway, you know, but but so there may have been some that that welcomed that. I, I I don't know that. But when I heard the story of how this came about, and so there's one person's faith that's also at stake here, right? If the church now says, yeah, in all categories, you you live a good life of faith, but but uh, you're married to someone who's the same sex as you, therefore you're out. Like 
where's the consideration of that? So, but when I said what I said, I'm not talking about that, but I needed to address the way you yeah. presented it. Yeah. As well, my I'm, own pushback. But there are progressives. There's a whole bunch of people in the middle, right? Who who may not be affirmers who are in shock at this sudden shift in in a in a shift to 150 years ago i'm just going to to typify it to a scholastic approach that are in shock and the the atmosphere of fear that has been created is not giving room for those in the middle cuz i'm being presumed to be an affirmer flat out in some of the way i talk right which is also interesting so mm-hmm. Like where where's the space for us in the middle to just work this through? And if that is not backed down on, then then there's then it's going to be very, very difficult. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that the shape or the way we make decisions needs to change. What I said at this event the other night was that this past synod started with an abuse of power talk. And when one of the two people who uh, was known for calling the question at the last synod in writing said we had the votes so why talk about it right us relational people us story people us connection people are baffled by that there's a logical truth to it but it, there's also a revealing that they don't understand how synod is supposed to work as a deliberative spirit-led discussion where you have room to change your mind based on the discussion. So changes to synod that allow the discussion to be um, different. I hated the three-minute clock from the day it was instituted. And I remember that synod very well the first time it came in, because I do watch them all. And, um, and, And we were all sensitive about ethnicity. And then this, I think he was a Navajo delegate stood to speak or or an African-American, like a person from actual Africa or something like that. He stood to speak. Now in his culture, you acknowledge all the, all the bodies that are represented in the building, right? Three minutes were up and he was cut off. And I thought, okay, now the ethnic advisors are going to stand up and say, mm-hmm. wait a second, this is his, this is his way, right? So, mm-hmm. and the same for me, I couldn't live under that three minute clock. I would be looking for ways to have a friend unplug it as soon as I started speaking or something like that. Because it doesn't work that way. You don't deliberate well in that kind of situation. And maybe the body's too big. So changes to the structure of synod. Um, So that's two. Um, And then please, as you guys are showing, some curiosity about this relational understanding of things and how that shapes the practicality of my theological approach and how my I try to work with my heart and my head together as a pastor, as a person, and all those kinds of things. That's what comes for, to mind first. So that would be three quick things. Yeah, the, yeah. the body of Christ is many parts, right? And so there are those that think in in different ways than one another in to mix metaphors in the body of Christ, yes. right? But um, yeah, I um no, I we stumbled on this um in a long time ago in one of our episodes where there are, there are many in the more conservative traditional camp that see a denomination essentially as a collection of doctrines, and, and so um. So it's like, oh, just look at what it is on paper, and that's the denomination. And, right. and I think the 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 opposite um, extreme would be 
the denomination has very little to do with the doctrine and theology and more to do with relationships and institutions and so forth, where we cooperate with one another and we have Galvin University and a seminary and World Renew and, and all that. And and it matters, like I've even seen pastors post, um, we need less doctrine and more love, right? And yeah. so that, that that's one thing we I know. try to... We try yeah. to talk about here a lot on on our on our right. podcast is let's avoid the the ditches of saying being reformed is just always reforming whatever that might mean to anyone. Well, that's and, a whole other book, yeah. Yeah, uh, a friend then, of mine yeah. is reading Andrew Root right now, and he challenges that whole notion. It's interesting. Yeah, I said yeah, he's, I Root's cut you off, Zach. Though, what were you gonna? What, oh, what I was just gonna say that I think I'm in large agreement with a lot of what Pete is arguing for. Um, so thank you for that, Pete. Um, in terms of the ethics of synod and the ethics of the conversation in the CRC, I think we're so quick to short circuit things, to jump to conclusions very quickly without uh, having any room for the relational aspect of our denomination. That's that's part of what our covenant is. Our covenant is not just to these doctrines. Our covenant is to one another. And so, yeah, there should be a deep rethink. Uh, I'm not sure that things would change much even after that rethink, but people really need to come to Synod, um, especially in the year ahead, uh, with the ability to love and to listen, to, to care. I say all these as a conservative. Um, I, I don't know what to do about the shot clock thing. Um, I think that in some ways it's helpful. Oh, in yeah, other right. ways, Basketball. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think in some ways it's helpful. In other ways, yeah, it's difficult. Um, it seemed to me that things did go at a slower pace and whether that was better um, or worse this year, it's, I guess, up for everybody to decide for themselves. At the end of the day, though, I, I can't help but sense my sneaking suspicion is that really what's at play here, Pete, and this will sound maybe overly fiery than more so than I want, but my sneaking suspicion is that there are two religions at play here, sort of two objectively different, uh, you could say worldviews, but I think a religion is a better way of getting at it. And that's what's at war here. And there's a great deal of overlap in these two religions. Um, we want to call them the conservative or the progressive religion. Um, and that's why I think a lot of moderate people in the CRC still find themselves in that overlap and they find themselves agreeing because there is so much of a shared identity. Um, and yeah, this is not so much a thought in terms of what to do. This is just a recognizing what's, I think, happening, what's taking place. As somebody who studies a fair bit of church history, particularly early church history, is one of my own sort of hobby interests. It's interesting to me that at various points during different theological controversies in the church, uh, there were all kinds of discussions about who's in, who's out, are Arians Orthodox? And at various times, it seemed that they were. They seemed to be in the ascendancy of the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. Um, and so it took several decades, really even centuries, to figure out uh, how we could figure it or how we could decide what orthodoxy was. And it really wasn't until uh, the Council of Constantinople in 381, uh, for anybody who likes their names and dates. But even after that, Arianism was still not settled. Though the council had given a definitive position, it, it wasn't settled. And so they were, they were still figuring out uh, these two different religions. Now, uh, fast forward 1600 years, we all sort of know that 
Arianism is a different religion than Christianity. Um, and so I think we're sort of stuck in this place of realizing that there's two different sets and I'm not sure what we do with this. I'm not sure how many slow conversations, circles conversations will resolve it. As somebody who is, Pete, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I will sometimes tell people who are more of this mind. I think I'm an Enneagram nine. I don't know if that rings a bell to you. Yeah, I don't know the Enneagram, no. It means I'm the peacemaker. I, I like to see things oh, okay. all, on all sides. I like to hear people from different perspectives. And I will often find myself just dispositionally as a moderate in many ways. Uh, like, for instance, I really love listening to Paul Vanderclay. Paul is the Pope of moderates in my mind. Um, and I, I really <laughs> right. appreciate him for that um, because he helps people interact meaningfully across that, that boundary, right? Yeah. Um, and so I love listening to Paul because I feel like Paul helps explain my thoughts to those on the other side, and he helps explain the other side to, to me, yeah. right? Um, and so in some ways, I'm sort of a moderate, but with a strong leaning towards the conservative side of things. Uh, and I think that that's clear in our work here on the podcast, at least my work on the podcast. Um, and so yeah, my fear is that with the denomination, these the two religions that are seeming to be at work uh, are going to have to have some sort of separation, and that's going to be brutal and painful, and I'm not cheering that on. Uh, I almost see it as an inevitability, and I wanna, I'm curious to hear if you are more hopeful than I am, or if you are seeing the same sort of train wreck happening in slow motion that I see seem to be happening yeah, so or seem to be seeing. I started out with my videos intending to be centralist like Paul, but then my anger <laughs> overcame me. So here, here's how I'm going to say it. As a moderate, until the abiders repent, there's no hope for putting it to back together. Hmm. Well said, I guess. I enjoyed saying <laughs> that succinct, so sharply. Succinct. Um, <laughs> Repent I'm not saying what? I agree. <laughs> so a, a call to repentance is followed by you, you've you've erred in God's law by God's word according to this standard. So you're called to repentance. So what are we called to repentance for according to that standard? I mean, you can't just throw out there, you need to repent, you bad or, people. Um they need to understand and repent of how they're actually in fear of some of the changes in society and how they have leveraged our confessions to try and stop one version of those changes, namely same-sex marriage, from getting into the church. They need to repent of being pharisaical and cerebral only, being only brains as part of the body of Christ, because they're surgically cut off brains, in, and so they're not connected with the body. They need to reconnect their brains and their doctrines with the heart, right? So one of the themes I preach is heart change because that's how i can introduce to congregations the idea that when you learn about the and the doctrines explain this how god through jesus restored the possibility of relationship doesn't guarantee relationship and once you enter into that relationship you will change you will find people saying to you you're a different person what's going on and so that's the transformation so now, I can't convince anybody of that, but that is some of the wrong that I see. They also need to repent of bringing American politics, representative democracy, onto the floor of synod. When the statement is made, we had the votes, why should we talk about it? 
that is not spiritual deliberative conversation anymore. And that is a, an error. That is a wrong. Um, now, I'm saying it strongly now. It could simply be misguided because we don't do a whole lot of educating. That's why I say the next synod, there should be someone giving a talk on the intent of synod being a prayerful, deliberative assembly where you come tabula rasa and you hear what the spirit says through all the people that are there or through all the material that's presented. And then you prayerfully make your choice. You don't come with your votes already decided. So those are some of the things I would point to. And I know I'm pointing to them strenuously, but um, the progressives don't have, the middle progressives don't seem to have places where they can say these things. And a lot of them don't dare say it publicly. So uh, yeah, I I, uh, I affirm that that call to repentance for the, the hubris involved of saying we have the votes and so why do we need to discuss? And so I think that's a fair rebuke. Um, to what I would understand is a few people in the abide group. And so that that's where maybe I would, I guess, want to correct the 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 group label of abide. And so like what I've participated in some abide things, I've written an article for them. Um, and uh, what I've seen is, is uh, a real desire for love, to love our neighbor, to hold to the doctrines that God's word teaches and so what I've seen is is generally very healthy and very good. And right. even how we do ministry here is full of love. And um, we're dealing uh, right now. I'm dealing with some very, very tricky situations that uh, the posture is to care, to yeah. love and to inject God's word where where that must be done in certain circumstances. And so that's where it gets a little bit difficult to say abide must repent. Well, are there some in the group that should repent of of that attitude and that action? Yes, I would agree with that. Um, but the the broad sweeping charge of Phariseeism to me just rings rings hollow. I, I I just haven't seen that, and maybe that's it's not in the HSR, for example. There's there's the HSR is loaded with pastoral care, and and in nearly all the comments of synod um, by those of a more uh, traditional um, perspective, were we we love our neighbor. We love right. uh, people, right. and we we desire for them to live a whole life and to live a chaste life, um, and 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 one well, of celibacy. So so I I'll give you that. Um, but I mean, that was one thing that came to mind. I I read yeah. a blog post by somebody too that was part of the abide movement that I thought, oh man, and that was on a similar theme of uh, you know the the boot marks on the butts of pastors that need to leave that sort of a thing, and mm. um. So the if 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 you're right, then and the abide certainly believes in discipline. Although again, that's another topic I would define mm -hmm. differently than they do. Um, but d discipling and and you know, for me, discipline is so. How's that working for you? You know, you're pretty hungover this morning. How's that working for you? Going for a drink last night? You know that that sort of that's discipline, out of relationship in place already. So mm -hmm. so um, he, uh. So then the abide movement needs to be working on those folks and correcting yeah. them. That's not, but I'm calling it out. Yeah. Hmm. Nobody else seems to be doing it. And that's very disappointing to me. Yeah. yeah well, I think there's um, room and, for calling it out. I, I, I think, yeah, oh, but I think there's, there's also more thinking that needs to be done just about, and I think you've been pushing for this discipline. How, how does discipline work in a recon reconciliatory way? Right. 
Um, if we're going to call a biters to repent, which sure that may be fair in some corners, I think maybe for some it is like Mark, I, I, I have experienced the people I know who are a part of abide. Um, most of them I think are in good faith. There's, there are some things I've heard behind closed doors that I'm not really, I can, couldn't per personally get behind and I, I would right. say, yeah, there needs to be some repentance there. Uh, but for the vast majority of people I came into contact with at Synod who were a part of Abide or were affiliated with it in some way. I mean, who who is the abider? I don't know who an abider is really. Right. Um, right. It's hard to define, right? Yeah. And and so, to be, you know, like yeah. um the the group, the for, formal groups on the other end, we can say similar things about, right? Like so yes. So um that 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 just with any group. But I'm because I yes. know the abiders believe in discipline. They need to rein these people in, and and that's not a matter of just making sure they don't say anything publicly that can be that can be taken wrongly. But they need to be un, they need to understand that their attitude is wrong. So, mm -hmm. and Mark, I'm I'm working on the on the parable of the lost son, and I mm -hmm. see this all reflected in that. And that's a video that's a video series that I just started yesterday. Um, and so at the end of that, I'm going to talk a little bit more. I won't call it Phariseeism, but I'm going to call it older sonism. Um, and and I hope to share what I I'm, I'm really upset that nobody like I'm not a brilliant theologian. I'm a sociologist more before I was a theologian, right? And um, so I, I'm just not good. You could name some theologians, and I would go, yeah, I've heard that name before, you know, but I wouldn't know mm -hmm. what they stood for. So which didn't serve me well at seminary, where you got to be able to do that stuff. So. Um, but I, I do hope to put one out on practical relational theology in, in, in within a month or two. And then I have uh, I have one that I do about the Ten Commandments as the Ten Posts, which conservatives are going to have a heyday with. But I, I think I'll risk it. Hmm. Well, uh, hey, that that's, uh, leads into a question I did want to ask you. You uh, had a video on um, centered set. Uh, communities versus bounded set communities. And for those who listen to our podcast who don't know what those words means, the general idea is the centered set community is drawn to a well at the center. We think of a herd of cows or sheep. Yeah. And so they're drawn in. And so they they remain at the well, um, sort of of their is, own volition. Who is be, Jesus? Be, right, because of the goodness of what's at the center. Whereas the bounded set is the group with the fence around. And so... Um, yeah. You spoke very strongly against the the bounded set, and and I think it's related to this conversation where yes. you you basically say the the fences are not what we need. We need um, the centered set. Um, but uh, how does that work? Knowing that there are wolves and thieves uh, who are going to go to the well, knowing that there are that's where the sheep gather, and so they're like what Jesus says in John ten, they're going to go there to steal and kill and destroy, and so. Uh, what what do we do? <laughs> That's where I see the fences helping to keep the 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 sheep who are at the well uh, safe, uh, according or alongside, of course, the work of Christ, who is the good shepherd who does that work um, actively. Um, what, what do you think in terms of uh, the relationship there of false teaching, uh, the recognition that it's a big theme in the New Testament is false teaching, um, and and how that sort of requires for us to put some fences up. Maybe you wow. maybe you disagree with that, but uh, wow. uh no, I like it. Um so first thought is that there are more wolves inside the fence. My experience is that there are more wolves inside the fence, right? 
um, a very personal experience, which I told you guys off air. Um, and um, so, so the fence does not guarantee wolflessness and the fence can become an idol and a false security in terms of the Sabbatarianism that we talked about before, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, so how about we try and create a church of people who are drinking from the well of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the word, and they just live in my summary of being reformed, that, that's what I pointed to. Then they, and they just live their lives and they do their worship and that becomes its own version of an attractional model, not because of their lights or their smoke machine or their music, yeah. but their relationship with Jesus makes them attractive to the others. It's attractive and, because it's truly good. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, but the un unfortunate play out of that, particularly hard to understand for people who tend to think fence-like, is that some people end up inside, they're not wolves, but they are injured lambs and they are not behaving like sheep should behave. Right. So, so we need to be equipped how to walk with those injured sheep. Um, in one of my videos, I refer to a story and I, I'm not going to tell it off air, but I mean, uh, it's one of the classic, you know, um, people who are gay in my life, um, who the church kicked out as soon as he started talking about it as a young teenager, right? So, and our family has journeyed with this fellow and it's been an immense privilege, but also very, very painful to see him each time. The last time I had lunch, supper with him or lunch with him, at his request, he he was showing the signs of his crack addiction. And mm. he then he admitted to me, Pete, I'm doing stuff I would have never imagined, mm. right? And I think, okay, what could the church have done differently from the very start, according to 73, that would have put him on a different trajectory? Well, it means taking the fence down and allowing a kid who's struggling to be part of the community and 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 so on. I'm, I'm not saying do perform his wedding yet, right? But mm -hmm. just, and and fence thinking excludes those opportunities. It's a lot neater. Because when, when a church says to a kid like this, well, then you can't play the organ and the piano anymore in church, then the kid naturally leaves and the church can go, okay, we, we escaped a hard one there. The harder work is walking with the people that are struggling, as, as you depicted that you're in a situation you seem to be doing that with now. So, so that's the difference between the well and the fence. And I'm on the side of the well and I'm anti-fence. But I, I know it's partly because of how I grew up. Even as I, I hear you describing that, I, I'm thinking the fences are meant to to keep, like in John 10 again, uh, to to protect the sheep, uh, the sheep who belong to the good shepherd, who know the shepherd's voice. Um, and in that context, they're meant to keep out the thieves and wolves, those who desire to seek and kill and destroy. And so um, you, you're describing your experience that the fence actually kept out the sheep that want to get in. And um, I, I think of fences more in terms of I'm hoping they keep out the thieves and wolves who want to get in, sure. you know. Um, and so I, I I hear your your compassion for this young man, and I'm I'm sad that he was mistreated and sinned against in the church. Um, that's never my intention, or I I don't, I don't think that's the intention of 
the abide group at all either. I'm not really an abide apologist per se, but I'm just trying to help maybe those who listen to get a sense for uh, the ethos or the approach of, of the abide group. Um, I, I don't think it's a, a desire to keep the wounded sheep out. I think it's a desire to keep the wolf and the thief out um, so that the wounded sheep can receive care through Christ. Um, uh, that is real care that the, that that's in line with the teaching of God's word um, instead of encourages them uh, to live in a way that God's word would not allow for. Right. Well, I, I'll just say, I don't hear that from them. Sure. Okay. Well, yeah, you, um, there's some great material. The interview with Rebecca McLaughlin was awesome in that regard. And the interview with Neil Shenvey was awesome in that regard. And so uh, maybe uh, checking those things out would be, would be helpful, but we should wrap our time up, Pete. I know that um, okay. Zach has already departed from us because he has a ministry uh, um, uh, requirement where he has to go to uh, help feed okay. the uh, uh, lunch to the uh, the high school students of Ripon High, the public school. Oh, wow. So um, it's a really neat ministry there. So Zach has already cool. left us. <laughs> but yeah. Pete, thank you so much for for joining us. Any maybe further just final thoughts for listeners of Reform Podmatics? Uh, um, any closing ideas or things we haven't gotten to yet? Well, there's many. So okay. no, I won't start on any of those. I, I thank <laughs> you for inviting me. And I thank you for the conversation. All right. Well, thank you, Pete, for your candor and for uh, adding your... Well, that's another middle name. Yeah. Yeah. Good. <laughs> uh, let me tell you this this quick story. Um, Go ahead. Uh, I don't know if you know Cecil Van Nienheis, but he did a workshop one time. He was at Pastor Church Resources at one point, and he did a workshop on uh, managing polarities. And um, so he put out in front of this group, and we know each other. So he in front of this group, he said... A polarity, for instance, is candor and diplomacy. And then he said to the whole group, I think it was all regional pastors or something. He said, uh, for those of you that know Pete Vanderbeek, you know, which polarity would he end up on? <laughs> candor. I'm not yeah, we need diplomacy. Some, we, need, uh, we need both, don't we? So We do. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, though, Pete. And uh, thank you also, listeners, for joining us on Reform Podmatics. And we will see you next week. Thank you.